Is this for credits? The NZATE podcast. Philly Wintle, it's episode 10. I feel a real sense of achievement, don't you? I do, especially after the end of the first week of term, more than anything, to be honest. Yeah. Don't the holidays recede into the distance so quickly? Like, we had a holiday, but I don't remember it. Although I was, a, I was such a piece, I did, I did nothing over the holidays. I didn't read. I was grossly unproductive, and I've gone from that kind of vegetative state to being very productive, and it's been a, quite an abrupt transition. Which I'm, I'm still transitioning. Yeah, I think it takes a little bit of warming into. I've got one of those activity trackers, and actually, one of the things that I forget about teaching is it's just physically demanding. Like, do mm. a lot of physical effort. So, yeah. anything interesting in your week back? Oh, you did a workshop. Yeah, it was so good. It was really, really good. I was. I mean, I spoke to you the the night before. Um, I had a bit of imposter syndrome. You know, the teaching of language at any year level, like that workshop is, is focused at juniors, but it's so niche. It's And I was concerned that people might be turning up with an expectation that I would that I would have all of the knowledge. And I'm loath to think that anybody on the other side of any professional space knows less than I do. That's It's just so arrogant. I would never walk into a professional setting when I'm presenting thinking that. So it was just kind of navigating what if people are expecting that. How am I going to gently disappoint them over the course of the day? But it was awesome. There was some real awesome characters in there, people who I used to teach with, so some familiar faces, some people who were fantastic contributors, and it just, the mood was so positive. And we also had it in the Mind Lab in Grafton, which is where I used to work before I started at Albany Senior. And it's a cool space and it feels like home. But I think it's so important for us as teachers to do PD in nice spaces. We so often do PD in schools, you know, to cut costs. And there's a lot to be said for walking into a professional space that is when there's catering and you can get a cup of tea and things. I don't know. It's just validating. And it happens in so many other professional workspaces other than public service. So, um I think that that meant a lot to people, but it was great. I really enjoyed it. Professionally, there's nothing better than a room of English teachers. Like, we're awesome, aren't we? We are, and we're such nerds. There was one point someone was saying something and I wanted to be like, you're such a nerd, but out out of love, you know. Yes, yes. But someone was talking about... Oh, I'm, I'm going to base this unit around like Marvel, but particularly like that the soliloquies of of uh, I, I don't know if it was villains or superheroes or just kind of characters and in general um, talking about the character arcs and then thinking about the type of language that those villains are using and then making comparisons between like what has been written about those com- those characters and sort of character analyses and then also what those characters are saying on film. It's like this is this is really the nerdiest thing anyone has ever said. Uh, but it's brilliant, and we were just all sitting there absolutely frothing and learning from each other. It was really yeah. cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a, a very humbling day to um, lead a team of 40 teachers. It was a huge turnout, and for everyone um, to have have taken something really positive from that. And that um, makes me think about Glenn Cahoon, who's our guest in this podcast. 
because his tribute for teachers said a lot about that. I was very humbled by the generosity of the way he framed the role of teachers and young people, and I'll leave him to speak for himself on that, but I must admit it was such a delight to re-listen to the way that he saw us and the work we do. He's such a cool dude. I feel so lucky for having been able to connect with him a, a few times in the last couple of months, really. Can you tell us about that thing you did? We had, and it's on the Enzate site, um, you'll need to, to log on, so your school will need to have that membership to be able to view this, but I interviewed him about his text, Letters to Young People, when we talked through a couple of poems, and um, the way that interview is really structured is I, I, I flicked through the book, I constructed some questions and and then we had a corridor about that um, and that lasted about 40 minutes or so and then I thought I'd really throw him under the bus um, and show him a poem that I had written when I was either 16 or 17. Um, I was very unwell when I was was that age, very depressed and had um, huge a, a terrible relationship with food which lasted about 10 years or so 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 I think you were the brave one there it might have been a bit of throwing oneself under the bus <laughs> yeah I don't know I don't know like I've so moved past that and and learned so much from that and it's one of the reasons I went into teaching anyway mm. but so I showed him a piece of pretty embarrassing poetry and said what what would you do with this and so we had about a half hour workshop where he taught me so much about the construction of poetry but it was so valuable because the work that he was critiquing was was a 16 or 17 year olds who wasn't precious about the work being modified so I see that clip as being very helpful for um teachers if they wanted to show their students in creative writing or if students are doing writing portfolio he was talking about like the horizontal versus the vertical structure and he's reading this line, it has this kind of connotation which doesn't match with the next line. It is things that I, in in my youth, would never have imagined cause, because I, um, I, I was a confused teenager. But even as a teacher saying so many things that I just, I don't know if I would have recognize that in anybody else's writing let alone my own and now I have a poem that's by Glenn Colquhoun and Philly Wintle as a 17 year old so that was an ulterior motive and I'll frame that yes forever that's right yeah. that's an artifact <laughs> to keep forever yeah so cool such a cool opportunity I think because it was time pressured as well because Glenn can yarn and I can yarn so we were we were trying to to finish but because it was time pressured it meant that he was potentially a little bit more ruthless in some of those choices and so that process is hypertrophied which is so the boat but it was it was exaggerated I could have just said that why but, you know, why use a simple pick, word when you can use a big long complex yeah. one that people have to look up the dictionary <laughs> yeah, yeah. to understand no. yeah I, yeah yeah cool I um <laughs> I, I I've been thinking and starting to use too these podcasts as an archive of various artists reading their own work it wasn't mm. a conscious intention, but it's just been how it's worked out. And now we, we're starting to develop this free list of great poetry read in the voice of the poet with all that associated discussion. I'm, I'm really liking that number 10, looking back at how this has travelled. We've had some wonderful voices on here, and it's nice to get into double digits with, um, with Dr. Glenn. So, yeah, massive mihi to him for his time and contributions that's right he was in his surgery at the end of the day for that wasn't he 
Oh yeah, I don't know. I've I've seen the backdrop of that room a couple of times, and I I didn't know if it was home or work. Maybe it's a Zoom backdrop. Well, thanks, Philly. Another week down. Some more to go, but let's focus on the front end of the term. Yeah, look forward to hearing and seeing from you all, listeners, sometime soon. All right, matewa. What's it like for you at this time of the year, Glenn? Quite busy. Yeah. Um, a few teachers but, coming in for a script of Citalopram? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, it's usually the kids, you know, yeah. when schools go back, we get busy. Because yeah, school's right. often one of the biggest stresses in young people's lives. But because COVID doesn't really make young people very sick, and the schools have been down, and we've actually been quieter. Because we're not the... You know, working with adolescents, that's they're not the group that actually gets medically unwell with it. They, they tend to pass it around to everybody. Yeah, so they've had to cancel quite a few appointments because people have ended up with COVID and can't come in, or else the schools haven't been running. So the kids are kind of like, woohoo. Mm. <laughs> and so are you doing online appointments or is it still all kanoi, no, kiti kanoi? We, we just, we're seeing people face to face we yeah is that quite an important part of your practice to be able to I mean it sounds like such a weird question to ask to actually see your patients yeah it's a super important part and we value it a lot although we do lots of stuff by text and email but always in the context similar to teachers of knowing the kid rather than just first visit is like this um when you've got a feel for a young person, then using all the different media is really helpful and easy because it's like, yeah, we'll just do it like that or do it like this. And you know them already. You know how they're going to react and you, you're just problem solving then. But always the context is that we can see each other face to face and there's an energy in the room that occurs in those situations that's really powerful and useful in my experience. So we we'll surrender that. Um, with great difficulty. Also, we've used so we've used all the media for years, way before the pandemic. So we just it's easy for us to swap over. Lots of the kids, mm. half the kids have got our numbers, so they just text or call us anyway. So. Do you work primarily with adolescents? Yeah, only with adolescents. So ten to twenty-four. Can you tell us a little bit about that? We see young people from the age of 10 to 24, um, which is quite a big age range, but there's quite a lot happening. It's not an area catered for very well in medicine, to be honest, because physically people are fairly well during that time. But actually, as teachers will know, there's a heck of a lot going on developmentally. You know, people double in size physiologically and they go from being children to driving cars and having relationships and choosing career paths and choosing attitudes to drugs and alcohol and they encounter that internal self-critical voice for the first, you know, often for the first time. And they also encounter the education system that might not mean to, but it's one of the first places where we're evaluated. It's like all of a sudden you're evaluated and so there's an internal criticism that starts to build up. It's like you have to be places at times, you have to do homework, you have to, and you get 
graded. So all of a sudden, and that, that's quite a big, not sure that that's a natural part of life. Like a human brain has to say, oh, okay, so there's a whole lot of ways of grading and comparing myself against people. And so there's a lot of comparison, comparison goes on. So, you know, we see young people who are struggling with all those things and sort of charting pathways through negotiating that. Plus, we see young, you know, lots of young people who have been through trauma, you know, who have grown up in households that have struggled and they have been, you know, they've watched horrible things happen, difficult things happen in, in, the, in their households and the families around them. And so having a place where they can talk about that and feel comfortable is really important. And before I worked in that field, I thought, oh, yeah, young people just don't have a lot to say because they don't get sick much. But now I find if in, a youth, in the context of a youth service, if you give, if you create a space where they feel comfortable... Young people just don't stop talking. <laughs> Actually, lots is going on, lots and lots, as you will well know. It's very much a talking medicine. And I wonder if that's a, a good segue into your letters to young people. You, you talk about teenagers with such compassion, Glenn. You can, you can hear it in your voice. Well, they're better than us. Yeah, they are in a lot of ways, yeah. Yeah. They yeah. are. They're, yeah. they're more honest, even when they're lying, mm. you know, and they hold us to account, but they don't know to. They, well, yeah. some of them do. <laughs> or they don't yeah. know that they are actually doing that. Yeah, and, and, and we've come up with lots of excuses um, for the way the grown-up world is. Mm. Um, a lots of we've come to some pieces with it. Sometimes it's because we're right. There are shades of grey, and it's good to learn them and be cognizant of them. But lots of times we've just compromised. I like them. Mm. <laughs> yeah. I really like them. They're, they're, there's, there's a rawness in them. Yeah. That and potency and volatility. They're um, believers. They're, and they're on the upward curve. Even when shit is going down, they're still usually on the upward curve. Life is bursting out of them. It's fairly atypical, isn't it, that there's a young person's medical health service. That doesn't seem to be something I'd imagine many kids would have access to. Yeah, well, it's a really good point, Chris, because there's no national strategy towards this, you know. They tend to grow up in places where people have been passionate about young people. Mm. What I'd like to see is how primary care works with young people to be offered to all the age range, because I actually think... If you get younger kids and, and old people and adults, they would love to be seen in the youth clinic, actually. It's, they would respond in the very similar ways, I think. And I think you need some privacy around it for young people, but sometimes it helps for them not to be seen in the same place their parents are. But by and large, I don't like separating it off too much, but... It's just that they do such a good job. But I wish that all primary care was like this. And I, like I say, I haven't talked to an adult who wouldn't want that either. Let's move into poetry. Is there a particular text in your letters to young people um, that you would like to read to us, Glenn? Letters to young people for me is a bit like looking into um, 
a photo album, you know, because they're all written out of direct experiences of engaging with young people, specific young people. So it's always hard to choose. This is for a young man who I've been talking quite a bit to on and off over the years and who has sort of struggled with with drinking quite heavily, drinking alcohol and, and underneath that always the demon of, of not valuing himself very much. And then at some point you don't know whether the alcohol's actually just making that all worse and then making it better and then making it worse and and driving it and it becomes a chicken and an egg thing. And um, I, I had been talking to him a bit and then I went up north back to what I consider home and I was getting the ferry from Paihia to Russell and I got onto the Russell Wharf and there was a big old marlin hanging off the gantry there. And it was gorgeous, you know, and it looked so pained hanging up by its tail. And there were guys there, you know, measuring the trace and, and the line weight and, and applied to see if it met the conditions for a record. And I sat in the ferry watching him and the men <laughs> and, and the women. And I wrote this poem and, uh, and, you know, it's the way poems go. You've got one set of thoughts in your head you see an experience and all of a sudden those two things start to talk to each other this one is called one that got away for jack i saw a fish the other day brother it was magnificent men in shorts were standing around drinking and talking in their men voices yeah nah shit yeah they said and nah yeah shit nah the fish hung from a crane, pointing downwards. A rope had been tied around its tail. It bled from a slit the length of its belly and from the gills and from a hole in the side where the gaff had gone in. It seemed puzzled more than anything else, wondering about our world without float. What sport this was and how it brought pleasure. From its mouth snaked the trace, curled on the wharf, delicate with gore. I imagined the hook at its end, its pull deep and sharp, the lure that drew it in. What was the difference between its life and mine? We shared the same sinew and spine, we shared the same sky. We shared the same kick, the same gasp, and the same wild eye. For a moment then the fish became my mother. It became my brother. It became my push, my pull, my priest, my friend. It became the lost, the found, the sad, the ne'er-do-well, the poor, the homeless, the patched up, the misunderstood, became you, sucking from the bottle, lighting up, sticking the boot into yourself over and over again. Life had so recently sat inside the thing, I thought it could not have gone very far away dripped from it still in the pat, pat, pat of tear, blood, sea.
from the tip of its silently offered sword. Perhaps the fish was sitting at that very moment, on a nearby bollard, looking back at itself, the past flashing by, the future leaving without it. Did it feel once more the weight of good in all those ordinary decisions made to eat, care, exist, go on? Did it consider only the remarkable privilege of life itself? Was it by reflex or rage? Whatever the case, with that thought alone to prod its raw and bloodshot eye caught mine, swung round to see if the coast was clear. And while the voices were busy, bearing and telling, and measuring the trace, I saw the grit set in. In that moment, the thing bore down, fought back, released at last like some long coiled spring it arched its back, thrashed its head from side to side, gave a flick of its tail to rise up and free of the gantry describing as it did so a single perfect parabola to the sea. The men scattered, year nah shit years seagulling from the wharf in every direction. I ran to the water then and watched the fish slip beneath the waves. There it was in its element again. Even the men with the beer gathered and were glad for it. In time, everyone turned round, went back to their day, as if they'd seen all they were going to. But somewhere, deep down, in some great cavernous space, I felt its joy and pain and knew that these could not go unspoken. In that moment, the sea flinched. Its surface caught, drawn down into itself by some secret pull as fathoms deep, the fish began to rise again. Past refuse and wreck, its colours pierced, its eye held true. Like some meteor reversed in time, it drove upwards into the sky. Free of limit, for a moment it hung. Godlike, proud, sail hoist, begged, wild, and free. As though passing on its way between worlds and startled by seeing itself for the first time. Beyond it fell, changed forever, plunging back into what seemed like then a different sea. The hook spat sharp into the wharf, remained ruined and small. This I wish for you, brother. This I wish for you, at least. That's the fish poem. <laughs> How lucky are we to have just 
sit here and listen to Glenn Calhoun read that poem. I think of right, a young uh, man, I, I, yeah. I think he likes feeling that he could be a marlin, you know, mm. that he could flick off the gantry and, and swim again. I, th I think it's quite interesting given that you work in the medical profession and your poetry, particularly this one, it really does examine that liminal life-death place, that moment where that hangs in the balance and then is escaped from back into some kind of exultant life. Do you think there is a connection between those things? What I'm drawn to in medicine and what compels and what comes in and what I see in that poem when I've relive the experience and and in a piece of writing um, and I'm sure it happens in teaching too is that there are moments in the everyday of what we do because they're both communicating professions um, we and and they're both professions where relationship counts a lot and you can get into a routine with them and things are just said because you've said it this is the sixth year you've taught you know um, <laughs> Romeo and Juliet or you know bred in South Auckland and um, so it's gone you're going through the motions but then there's times when you actually connect and you're actually talking to a young person um, or to anybody mm. in any conversation and then all of a sudden the room changes mm. and there's a vulnerability and you're not you're not big and they're not small and you're not man and they're not women and we're just there's a we're two interacting consciousnesses just talking and connecting. It's not even so much about what's been said, it's about what's been resonated. And that happens, like I say, I'm sure it must happen in teaching mm. when you're talking. And when you're even in learning situations where you think, I can feel the learning being sucked into this young person, and I'm sucking learning in from the experience mm. as well. But it I certainly happens in medicine and I find it magical. I've learned more and more how to get to that altar. Um, at first, I found it accidentally and going, whoa, what's happening? Then I realized I found it all the time in poetry because when you approach a topic in poetry, you approach it with a, for me, with a deep, deep compassion. And it's not like compassion, like kindness. It's like, it's not... It's a brutal compassion. It's a shredding of self and an inter... And it's... I always think of... It's like stripping yourself of skin and being chest forward against... Pressed into the thing. And then it's like you're a stamp and then you come off and press it into the paper. And if you can get yourself into that state, then you can capture something authentically. And so I was able to find those moments in a consultation if I approach them as a piece of poetry. I find that space, Chris. I know that's a long and involved answer, but I find that magical, and that's what's given me my second wind in medicine, is that actually poetry has taught me. Medicine gave me a lot of interactions with people, and then poetry, and then some accidentally became beautiful. And then poetry taught me to go, that's a thing and showed me how to get there quicker and what it sounds like you're describing is a pathway of making yourself vulnerable or available or open yeah, absolutely for sure but there's other energies in the room that you're carrying your past you're carrying yeah and keeping yourself still in all the business there's the unconscious there's always an actor 
taking place in the interaction, but there's another energy where things are really happening. Have you ever considered teaching, Glenn? Yeah, I, I actually taught science at my daughter's school for three years part No way. Yeah, because they had no science teacher. And mm. I know, I, I'd like to say it was a beautiful story, but, you know, life's too funny for that. And I, what I found yeah. is that three days a week I'd be a doctor with young people and I would love them. One-on-one, yeah. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, I'd love yeah. them. And I'd think, you're beautiful and I get why you act like this at school. Thursday, Friday was groups of them, and they hunted in packs. And I had—I just wanted them to be quiet while I talked about the electron transfer chain. And mm. and on Thursday and Friday, I found I just wanted to strangle them. I was like, ah! Ah! "Shut up!" So oh. your your individual patient is like that, Marlin. Whereas our classes are like a murmuration of starlings. So <laughs> it's quite a different formulation. Huge respect for teachers. Um, but that moment you're talking about, Glenn, of that that intimacy, and just the way that you describe that about being skinless and pressing your chest up against something is just so beautiful. I just loved listening to that metaphor. But that that happens in those one-on-one interactions yeah. with the class. When someone comes to you, I'm thinking today I had a student who sent me an email saying, can I come chat? And she was like, I hate my assessment. It just makes me feel sick when I look at it. I can't do it. And I am pushing them real hard. Like I know I'm pushing them. And she's like, I have cried over this, you know, and then it just all came out. And then we reconstructed the whole approach that she could take. And it was such a beautiful moment. The learning, like the assessment Mm. was really secondary to the interaction. Um, And, you know, that kid leaves the room and you're like, we did it. Like we're there. And you want to take everyone to that point because that's where you from a teaching perspective, that's where you get that deep buy-in to learning because learning sucks. Learning anything, self-improvement is awful. You know, it requires so much reflection and reshaping and it's a really uncomfortable process. So, of course, that happens in medicine. It it certainly happens in, in teaching all the time as well. The first thing and I think the most important thing I would say is use a great, like, you know, honestly... To, to stand in front of a group of young people for as much as I love them, they are demanding and they are demanding in packs and um, because they're talking to the other students in the room, not us. They're asserting pieces of themselves and we've got different agendas. We just want them to learn something. And so my respect before I would ever deign to tell a teacher what to do, like honestly, I, I have huge respect for what teachers do. My experience of 99% of teachers is they care about what they do and they care about the kids they work with and they see the joys, they see the same joys and to me, they're my brothers and sisters because they know our young and they listen to them and you know they're moved by them. So I, more than anything, would like to pay respects to them and, and maybe, if anything, to fight back about against the goddamn systems that don't let us be what we were trained to be, whether it's a doctor or a teacher, um, and trust your own instincts. Um, If it's advice about poetry, get chest onto things. You know, it it doesn't have to be writing. It can be photography. It can be macrame. It's the 
it's the moment and spark of creation. Feel that. That's the great joy and reward of poetry. If you can communicate that to a young person, creativity in any of its forms has been one of the great joys of my life and great discoveries. No one kind of really came along and told me, Glenn, it's a thing. It's a real, real thing. Um, I would have liked a teacher to tell me that and go, brother, don't care. Don't listen to what they say. You don't even li don't listen to what they tell you. Don't even listen to what the soul is telling you. If you want to make and create, if you want to feel the exhilaration and joy of, of pressing your chest against a thing or of sitting still in a moment, you follow that. It's real. You've been listening to Is This For Credits, the podcast of the New Zealand Association for the Teaching of English. Check out what else we're up to by going to our website, nzate.org.nz.